title for today's sharing is, uh, That is Why I Have Come. <clears throat> uh, it's, a, it's a verse which uh, is taken from when Jesus ends towards the end uh, in verse 38, where he says, That is why I have come, to go forth and to preach God's word. I was asked this very same question once, in fact, a few times on different places, Why are you here? And to some extent, uh, I pose the same question to you. Why are you here? Why are you a Christian? Why are you where you are in your workplace, in your home, in whatever mission field God has sent you? Why are you there? I want to begin this uh, morning sharing by asking and making this observation. <clears throat> Have you noticed that time doesn't always run at the same pace? I mean, you may count the seconds, but... Uh, one of the things that is etched in most people's memory is the countdown at Cape Canaveral when the, uh, uh, when the rockets are about to blast off and then you go 10, 9. It seems like the longest 10 seconds in the whole world until you reach zero and things take off. But I also know in my growing up years that uh, we all encounter time in a different way. Uh, I noticed that time goes faster during PE class. Uh, you know, you take off your shirt, you're about to kick the ball and it's time to go back to class. And he's like, where did the time go? I also noticed that time goes so much infinitely longer as the school bell is about to ring for dismissal. It gets even longer, closer to school holiday time. It's like, why is it moving so slow? And do you realize that time changes as soon as you get married? Uh, some of you know, some of you don't know. I notice that when you are dating, no amount of time is, is, is time at all. It's inconsequential. You wait for your girlfriend to be ready. You're about to go for the date. Hours go past and next thing you know, it's already midnight. The girlfriend is about to turn into a pumpkin or something. And you, you rush back as if like, you know, you're out of time. After you get married, five minutes and you're looking at your clock already, why is she so late? Time somehow seems to have changed. Or rather, our perception of it has changed. Now, you might be thinking, why is this uh, pastor joking up front there about time? Because in the first verse that we're looking at, in verses 14 and 15, and here, I'd like to draw your attention. One, it'd be good if you open your, your text. Then you can actually follow along with me. <clears throat> and the other one is, um, there's a sermon outline in the middle of your bulletin and some blanks to fill in if, you, if you'd like to pass the time away. <clears throat> so verse 14 and 15, let me just read that to you. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. And there's some things which I want to draw to your attention which doesn't come out so well in the English translation. One, there are two ways in which you can actually describe time in Greek. One is chronological time, and the other one is moment. So you may have a time, chronological time, or a moment when you've been waiting for in this particular Greek reading, the term which Marx used to write is not chronos, 
which is chronological time, but kairos. This is the moment. The moment when all of creation has been waiting for, the moment that has been prophesied in all of Scripture through Isaiah, Hosea, Malachi, about the coming Messiah, the coming King, the beginning of the end. Oh, sounds very chim, nice movie. The beginning of the end, the fulfillment of all God's prophecy is now come. So Mark makes two statements. The first statement the time of this fulfillment, this kairos moment is now here. And the second one is that the kingdom, or rather in the Greek, the basileia of God had arrived. Now, uh, if there is a kingdom, there is a king. If there is a king, there is a domain. And in the Greek, there are several ways to describe this, but in the Greek, what is described is not so much the physical space but the dominion, the rule of God has now arrived. The Basileia has now arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. So two statements. The time of fulfillment, what we've been waiting for is here, and the kingdom of God has arrived, is near, is at hand. Now, uh, it may not occur to you but to the Jewish people who were listening at that time, their ears would be tingling. Because not only were they being told something which they kind of knew. You see, if you come to them and say, there is a kingdom of God, they say, yes, 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 there is a kingdom of God. Yahweh is that God. And He resides in the temple and He is Lord over all eternity. But what was different about what Jesus is saying is, yes, there is a king, that this king is creator of heaven and earth, the beginning and the end and all that, but he is now at hand. He is near. He is present. And for those who understood and for us, for us who see it in hindsight, Jesus is that fulfillment. Jesus is that ruler of that kingdom who has arrived. And Jesus is not only that, He is that good news. Now, I put that word there in the Greek uh, and also the transliteration in English, euangelion. Euangelion is actually uh, translated in English as good news, but to the Jewish and the, particularly the Greek Roman Empire, it had a particular term it gave this picture. It is a picture of a Roman messenger or a Roman soldier who has run all the way from the front lines with news of a victory. And what he would do every time he entered into a village, he'd be, Evangelion, Evangelion. Good news, good news. The kingdom of Rome has extended and we have conquered a new piece of territory. It, it, it could be uh, the United Kingdom at that time or France or Germany or so forth. But this messenger would bring the Evangelion telling them that the kingdom of the ruling monarch had been extended. Jesus, quite the counter-radical, is doing the same. He is basically saying the kingdom of God has now begun. He is the messenger, but not only that, He is the message, and not only that, He is the King 
who has now come to establish this new kingdom. And he says, repent and believe. Now, what does repentance and belief mean? We might say uh, repent, uh, only happen, repentance only happens when we say the sinner's prayer or when we follow a particular formula. Not really. The original meaning of repentance is turn from your way. It is not just a turn in terms of a logical, uh, cognitive turning. It is a total reversal of an attitude. So to repent is to turn from your previous ways and then to believe. And to believe not in a rational, cognitive belief only, but in a belief and trust. A belief and trust. In other words, what I believe in, I also am willing to put my whole weight on in order that whatever transformation occurs, I do it full-heartedly with all commitment. Now, it's not easy to understand this, but uh, Dallas Willard, a uh, writer and theologian who wrote the book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, gave this particular illustration. He said, it's a little bit like when electricity arrives in the farming community in the interior of America. I'm not American, so I don't really understand, so I'm giving you an illustration based on my Orang Asli brothers and sisters. They're a little bit nearer, easier to understand. So here, on the right side, you have a picture of an Orang Asli kitchen. Okay? <clears throat> now, you imagine in your picture, uh, how many of you have been into an Orang Asli house and stayed in an Orang Asli hut before? Anyone? A few. Lovely. Uh, the rest of you who haven't, please go and see Dr. Go. Sign up for mission trip. <laughs> then we take you to the interior and you get to live there and you see what it's like. But here's one of the features, and it still is the case if you go into East Malaysia or uh, interior of Pahang or the further deeper reaches, reaches where there's no electricity, no piped water, piped or treated water. I'm just going to talk about electricity. When you go into an Orang Asli house, if they are particularly poor, it's mostly made out of uh, recovered wood or uh, bamboo. But in the kitchen, there's normally a big slab of stone or a piece of metal which they put there in the middle of that small kitchen. And the purpose is they are going to burn wood inside of their hut. They don't do it outside because one, you can't really control the fire. Two, if you're cooking food outside, uh, other food may come looking for you. <laughs> the wild animals might come looking for you. And so they burn this inside for several reasons. One, for heating because it can get cold if you're in the interior, but also to cook their food. There's no electricity, there's no light, and so whatever light that you have comes from the outside or it's from the fire. So what does this have to do with the gospel? Now, imagine I come over there and I say, repent and believe, for the power of electricity is at hand. Repent and believe, for the power of electricity is at hand. Now, in order for you to believe in this power of electricity, I may have a rational problem. My ability to comprehend electricity is zero. And you might say, Apa itu electricity? <laughs> what is electricity? How do you see it? 
What, what, what can he do? How do I know that this is uh, something better? And so the evangelist, the electrical evangelist will say, wow, without this or with this, uh, you can heat up your fire, uh, sorry, heat up your water without fire. You can cook your food without having to smoke, uh, uh, inhale all this carbon and smoke. You can have lights and study at night or you can have all these other appliances. That's evangelism. It's like telling them, once you engage in this power, life changes. But in order to become believers and adopters, some things have to happen. One is, you get rid of your stove, your wooden stove. You have to go and purchase an electrical kettle or electrical appliances. You begin to live in such a way that it is no longer a necessity for you to go and collect firewood every day but you have to pay for electricity and pay for the infrastructure and the cabling to come in. So to repent and believe in the context of the orang asli is the same as turning from your previous ways of cooking, living and doing things and to now put your trust in this power that you cannot see, cannot touch, cannot really control and live life in that new way. What does that mean for you? What really does that mean for you? Most of us, when we ask uh, this question, what is the gospel? What is the evangelion, the good news? Some of you, if you've been well-trained, you will pull up your four spiritual laws or your John 3.16 or your, you know, the you know, um, impassable chasm between God and man. And so you will begin by saying the four spiritual laws, okay, uh, man is separated from God, God is pure, man is sinful, there's this big thing here, and uh, in order for us to reach God, someone has to bridge it. I mean, you know the drill. But is that really the gospel, the good news? I know I'm a pastor, so you may be shocked when I say this, and you might want to address me later on, and I will say this as clearly as I can, but don't get me wrong. That is not the gospel. Some of you are going to arrange appointment after this. <laughs> what do you mean that's not the gospel? That's what we've been trained with all this while. It is part of the gospel. It is not the full understanding of what the gospel is. Here again what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So what is the good news? It's actually very simple English. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. But how is the kingdom of God at hand? How is the power of electricity at hand? How is the power of the Holy Spirit at hand? Repentance, belief, turning from your previous ways, living in such a way that you now live with God with you. No longer relying on your wisdom and own human intellect, but trusting in God to be the power that transforms things. 
Many years in my life, I lived in a, a church, urban church. And we were really good people, very professional, very good. Every time you say you've got projects, it's how much you need to raise. What do you want to do? So we come up with project plan, architect plan. We do a lot of things. But the number one thing that most of the time we do not do is depend on God. Because God is kind of scary. We're not too sure whether the power will turn on <laughs> when we tap on into it. And that's a scary thing. Because to trust and believe in God is to put your hands and your success and failure into the hands of God. And for many successful people, that's really scary. You might feel you're in that position. Your rational mind argues and fights against it. So how did Jesus respond to this? Several things. You need to know who is the one who is calling you and what he is calling you for. <clears throat> the passage continues on to talk about how Jesus goes to the fishermen and he turns to them and says, those who would follow me, you will become fishers of men. But the Greek calls it catchers. Fish catchers, but now catchers of men. You're going to catch men into the kingdom. And I want to point out this interesting thing. Mark doesn't really say this, but James, John, Andrew, and Simon, the four that are mentioned in this immediate calling, these were all also disciples of John the Baptist. Which means for a period of time, they'd been hearing about this message of God's coming, about the Messiah. Because John's role was, I am the messenger and I'm pointing to one who will come after me whose sandals I am not even fit to touch. And when Jesus appears on the scene, John the Baptist says, He's the one. Follow Him. And so these four guys have been looking out for the Messiah all this while. And the moment when Jesus comes, you will see that they leave at once. Why is this kind of important? Well, many of us hear God's call at different times. He kind of whispers. He kind of puts impressions into your heart. You know, I kind of like youth ministry or I like, kind of like being a missionary or I kind of like being a teacher, whether in kindergarten or a church school or in school. Oh, I kind of like being a preacher. All of like these things which God has packaged you, you kind of like. These are little whispers that come to you. But one day, out of the blue, suddenly God will confront you. And that's the point when you have this crisis of faith. Because it's kind of clear at that point that God is calling you. And to follow means to be obedient means abandoning a lot of things that you have built your life on. But to deny Him is going to wreck your soul because you're always going to be doubting and wondering, did I, did I miss that chance? Did I miss that opportunity? But don't worry, God will come back to you again and again. But the immediate response for those who truly hear and respond is they drop everything and they follow at once. I have friends who uh, kind of like had a lifestyle where suddenly one day God suddenly pops into their life and now they have to confront their fathers and their mothers and say, I think God is calling me into ministry. 
And some of them are leaders in the church. And they will, their common response is, surely not. Are you sure? We're kind of like the devil at times, you know. Surely God didn't say that. Are you sure? Are you not sure that He said something else? Show me where in Scriptures you are called to do this. And I'm not saying this in terms of full-time ministry. No, I'm saying this in terms of when a person decides to do something which he feels that God has told them to do, it might mean confronting a boss who's been telling them, close one eye, give the bribe. It may mean confronting an abusive teacher. It may mean confronting your best friend. But whatever it is, it requires courage and a crisis of faith. Because it's at that point we ask the question, God, is this really what you want me to do? And at that point, you need to make this decision. How did Jesus answer this question? Do I really know? Two things. One is, whenever He calls us to do this, He's the one who is calling. And where He calls and where He sends, He supplies. I can't say the number of times when things have occurred where I know of our own human need and ability, we do not have the means. It's kind of a, a counterintuitive. When God calls you to do something, most of the time it is God-sized. It may be small, but it is God-sized. I recall once when we said we will start up the boys' brigade in Shramban. The people say, we don't have people. <laughs> we don't have anyone who's willing to commit this, to do this. We don't have the funds either. But we said, do you feel that God is calling you to do this? And he says, yes, we, uh, we stopped the, the boys' brigade a while. We kind of regretted it. Now we think we should restart this. And the year in which they restarted, within two years, someone donated a huge amount of money, close to $90,000. And two people out of nowhere, East Malaysia, suddenly came into our church and said, I heard you are restarting the Boys' Brigade. Uh, we're trying to get our founder's badge and we'd like to volunteer our services. Did I plan it? Did any one of the leaders plan it? No. Did I went around ask for money? No. God supplies. And you can ask most of our mission people, when they have felt the conviction of God to go where He has sent them to do, God supplies. It is not foolishness, trust me. They pray hard about it and they enter into it with great fear and trembling. But when they know that God is sending, it gives you a great amount of hope and courage to know that even when things don't seem to be working out well, God always fits in. And so there's this tension, where is God leading? So in all these disciples who follow Jesus, they are watching Jesus at work. And when we go out to mission, whether it's in your marketplace, workplace, school, kindergarten, to witness God at work, not to witness yourself at work, but to witness God at work through you. So whether I fail or whether I succeed, I give it my all and I leave the rest to God. And God did many wonderful things. I can imagine you ask some of our mission guys, and I've heard many times, people who have like always, you know, I, I don't know how to pray for people. Uh, I'm afraid to pray whether things will go well for them. And they come back after the trip and they said, you know, this old lady asked me to pray for them. Stomach pain. 
pray already. Immediately after that, they start walking around and like, a miracle has occurred and it occurred through me. Have you ever met manic depressives who go on social work or mission work and somehow seem transformed? I met one young boy. Uh, he told me that he was having problems in terms of you know, suicidal thoughts and self-doubt. But he went on a trip. And after coming back from the trip, he said, I am so, so glad I went. Because I realize now that when I'm helping others, I don't look so much at my problems. And I realize that what I have is good. And that I am able to help others. And as a result of that, he had a different reality of who he was and he had a different reason now for existing. It wasn't based on the script that others had been shouting at him. It was based on the fact that in spite of all that I, others say about me, God has used me to bless someone else. And he came out of that particular issue. I put there and underlined it that Jesus cares for all who come to him. All. But mind you, he didn't solve the problems of the entire world. I'm pretty sure if he'd wanted to, could snap a finger and sort out all the world hunger problems. After all, he fed 5,000 and 7,000 people with, you know, three fish, five loaves, or a few scraps. He can, if he wanted to. But he only dealt with those whom God had sent to him. And so you might think, I can't heal the whole world. I can't even sort out my youth problems or my own kids. <laughs> you might say that. But with what you have, if you offer it to God, God can change it. Because He is the one who is calling you, He is the one who is sending you, and He is the one who will equip you. But the other important ingredient to this is that Jesus is the one who prays. It says that early in the morning, everyone else was looking for Jesus, but Jesus had gone into the quiet place, into the solitude to pray. So despite of the fact that he was popular and things were going his way, he nonetheless went to pray. And it is only after talking with God, then he says, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Number one rule for ministry is you please take instructions from your boss. And if the boss is not the pastor, nor is he your small group leader or whoever, who, other guy whom you look up to. Your number one boss is still God. And so the first person you need to ask when God is putting before you a spiritual challenge is, Lord, is this where you want me to go? Honestly. And trust me, this doesn't mean full-time ministry. Not always. It means whatever challenge you are facing in your life right now, whether it's in the kindergarten, it's in the school or college, or whether it's in your workplace, God has put you there in order that you would be the image of Christ where you are. What are you supposed to do? And are you asking God, why am I here, Lord? What are you asking me to do? It doesn't mean ministry is full-time working with the church. That is one of the aspects. 
But definitely, wherever you are, that's where Christ has put you. And wherever you act with this question in mind, if Jesus were in my shoes, what would he want me to do? When you do that, you are fulfilling his mission. When you do that, you are doing it in the name of Jesus. When you do that, you are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. That is mission. An intentionality of what you want to do, not based on an occupation that you have chosen. So why have you come? Why have you been sent to where you are? And what is God calling you to do? Have you received instruction for Him for what you are called to do? So let me end with these three thoughts for you to think about. <clears throat> have you turned from your previous ways of working, from your own human endeavour, from your own cleverness and your planning, and instead relied on the power of God working in you, the good news of the kingdom of God available to you at hand, right here, right now? And do you believe and when I say believe, it's not your rational thought that, yeah, yeah, Christianity is true, yes, Jesus died for me. No, believe in the sense that are you going to step out to do the very thing that God has called you to do, which is going to put your entire life at the challenge. That's what it means to deny yourself, to take up the cross and follow. Are you tapping on that power or are you relying on the same old, same old? Two, are you getting missional? Following God is not, oh, let me become the youth worker or the children's ministry worker or, or something related to the church that is full-time. No, no. Being missional is, I am operating in the name of Christ wherever I am. Whether it's with the migrant workers, with the Rohingya, whether it's with the grab driver while we're driving, whether it is in the pew here. What does it mean to act in the name of Jesus wherever God has called you to be? That is fulfilling that calling. So why are you there? Why are you where you are? And is Christ living and working through you? And thirdly, a very important one, are you getting instructions from God and following them? Or are you too busy? too busy chasing this life that you have that you don't have time to think about what you really intentionally want to do. Let me end with one more challenge which is not there. To all of you who have a family, one of your biggest challenges and one of your biggest missions is the mission outreach to your own children and your own children's children. Because when you want to understand missions, it is intergenerational, it is cross-cultural, and sometimes even crossing over boundaries, many boundaries. And trust me, your children are not in the same generation as you are. Their problems are not the same problems that you face. Their culture is none of the culture that you've ever faced. They are your first mission for you. And I say this to the missionaries, my good brothers and sisters, no point going on mission far, far away if you're not reaching out to your own family. I say that to myself too because I have to struggle with this too. It's easy to think, let me go and reach the unreached. 
but the nearest heart may be your own children and your own children's children. Are you being missional in how you disciple them? D6 conference just ended. Many people talking about this, but this is nothing new. I'm asking you, your family, your first mission, the community, your next, and the nation, your others. I want to end with this last thought. My friends in Nepal uh, asked me, and a few other places, some of my Orang Asli friends, they asked variants of the same question. In Nepal, they asked me, you are not Nepali. You are not even dark colour like us. For as far as we know, you are from China. I said, no, 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 I'm from Malaysia. <laughs> I'm a Chinese from Malaysia. Yes, yes, but you are not our people. Why do you come to Lahan? We are poor. We are far away from you. Why are you here? Orang asli, same thing. Pastor, you dari Seremban. Jauh, datang sini 8 jam. Naik four-wheel drive. Sampai tulang pun mau patah. I have an 80-year-old, I used to have an 80-year-old doctor with me. He still goes in. This 80-year-old doctor is an inspiration for me. The last time I just saw him, he was diagnosed with cancer. And his wife wants him to stop. He said, you're going too far. He works for hospice. You know what his answer was? These people are facing fourth-stage cancer. They're lonely, they're afraid, and their family doesn't want to have anything to do with them. I know it's tiring, but I go because if I don't go, who will go? I'm there because I care, and I have the ability to help. The same answer I used to give to my Nepali friends. I'm here because you are my brother. Different skin, different family, but we are still family under Christ. And out of love, I care for you. We are here for you. Will you love and care enough to go out to be the one sent? And will you answer in a missional way when Christ calls you? Let us pray. Oh Lord God, there are many things that we are often distracted by and wish to do. But when your call comes, Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts and know us and grant us the courage and the strength to follow where you send. Remind us again, Lord, that you did not call us to popularity and power and effectiveness, but to obedience. And where you send, Lord, help us to be courageous enough to go and where you send, Lord, will you provide? For what you call us to do is not human size, but God's size. And grant us favour, Lord, where we go, that we might know your hand is with us and that you are with us. We ask this, commit this to you, O Lord, and all the prayers of our hearts and the musings and the whisperings, Lord, that happen in this midst into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, let's prepare our hearts for...